0: Bibles turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we we, did, we didn't do this last week, but we, we had started before the uh, a study of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 15, of course, known as the resurrection chapter. And, and, and since we're talking about the resurrection and its application on Sunday mornings, we thought we would look at the chapter dedicated to the subject. So one of the challenges of that is uh, this is such an important theological text that um, many weeks we could easily, uh, to explore what it is on Sunday morning, we could just look here. So there will be probably some overlap, uh, particularly as we start uh, next week. And what you're getting in these first 11 verses is he's just laying out what is to come, and we'll just do the first seven verses. But previously what we did, we looked at, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Um, and, and Paul makes it clear that that is a historic physical resurrection that is the foundation of our faith. So what we want to do uh, today is look at how um, what Paul lays out here is the gospel in a nutshell. Um, so much of this should be reviewed. So with that, if you will stand with me, reverence of God's word, we'll read the first seven verses. And this material we've looked at before, especially if you've done the uh, new members class. Verse 1 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's go a little prayer. Our Father, we, we ask as always that you would, as we talked about this this morning, transform us um, into the image of your son. So um, open our entire being uh, that we would become like him. Uh, Lord, what we have here is the very basic gospel. Uh, let it be that none of this is new or unexpected, but what we have heard over and over again and, and having with it being so familiar, let us believe it, apply it, and share it. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Have you ever considered just how massive of a business advertising and marketing is? I was looking at some statistics this week and it really is quite astounding. You realize that in the United States alone there are over three hundred fifty one thousand billboards all around the country. Uh, that is by far the highest number of any country uh, in the world. Google holds about 28% of the online market share of advertising. Facebook controls about 24.5%, which means about half half of all online marketing are controlled by two uh, companies. Remember that whenever they pass certain discriminatory laws, you know, um, and and you, you can't advertise. YouTube made nearly thirty million, or I'm sorry, thirty billion dollars in ad revenue uh, in 2021. 20, uh, in the 1970s, the average American saw between 500 and 1600 ads per day. It's the 1970s that number in 2017 increased between 4,000 and 10,000 ads per day. Now, I know what you're thinking is that that, that that can't be true. And that's what I thought. But then I started to think, what is it like, particularly if you live in a city, to drive down the road? What is on Windows, cars, billboards, um, YouTube ads, uh, television ads, if you play Candy Crush on your phone, whatever it might be, I do believe that number. Now, obviously, if, if you're in New York and there's 10,000 ads in, you know, in, in, in Manhattan alone or, or Times Square, I guess is what I'm looking for. Um, yeah, but, but I have no doubt each day we do see a couple thousand. Of those four to 10,000 ads you see every day, um, we notice less than 100 of them. And of those 100, we remember only a handful. I bet, I bet that you've had this experience before where someone says, have you seen the commercial blank? And you say, no, I don't know that commercial. You mean Geico has a new commercial out? And then it, either they explain the commercial or you later come across and you realize, I have indeed seen this. We've trained ourselves, because we're so inundated with, with ads, we've trained ourselves to block so much of it out. It really is incredible when we when when think, think about it, which means that ads, all of them go out of their way to get your attention. One of the best ads, I can't tell you anything about the ad. It was a Super Bowl ad. Can't tell you anything about it, don't know the company. They could be pagans for all I know. All I remember is, at a Super Bowl party... The television went mute. The ad had no sound. And that was so strange, we all took notice of it. That was their strategy. How can we get people to pay attention to our advertisements? I know, what's the one thing that we've never tried? No sound, no music, no, no voice, uh, nothing. really is amazing, the number of ads that, that, that we get. The gospel of course is not a message that we share but it, or we sell but it is a message that we share. And as such in order to share our faith we must understand what it is. You go unfortunately go to the average Christian and you say what is the gospel what is the the, the fundamental message of Christianity and unfortunately you're not going to get the same answer. Um, much of it is because of ignorance or because of agenda or or whatever. Uh, but here, Paul actually lays out for us the very simple kernel of the gospel. And if we get this wrong, everything else we believe about the Bible really uh, th- doesn't matter. Paul, of course, wrote this. We talked about it last time. Most believe between 55 and 57 AD. This is roughly 20 years after the resurrection. And I, I used this uh, illustration last time. Uh, 9-11 was about 20 years ago. You and I can give very detailed accounts of it. And if I were to make claims about 9-11, for example... Uh, you remember that there were uh, fears of car bombs going off in New York City. I mean, right right when it was happening, there were reports of car bombs. And, and if I stood up and said, do you remember the car bombs that happened on 9-11? You would be able to, by your own memory of two decades, say, no, that was falsely reported. You know, why, why? Because even 20 years, like, there are witnesses who can correct the record on it. Same is true here when Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. You remember that 1 Corinthians 15 is an early creed, which means it predates Paul's not just writing of the letter, his arrival in Corinth. So we can date this text that we just read and we'll look at this evening within about 10 years of the historic resurrection. That is significant. And that is free, right? I don't know what else to do with that. That is just free information. In 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with uh, a number of dividing issues. There were some palky people in in Corinth. And so uh, these issues involve uh, factions over their favorite pastor or personality, rich versus poor. They were suing each other. There's theological divisions. And what it is we get in chapter 15 is... Paul is discussing the life after death, but more than that, there is this fear that those who died before the resurrection of Christ will not be witnesses of it. They will not be participants in it. And Paul writes to to explain that the resurrection is foundational to our faith and informs our understanding of the life that is to come, and which we talked about uh, last week, uh, last Sunday morning. Um, And so... uh, he begins here in these first seven verses with what is the basic gospel message? And we have a pretty straightforward outline here. Nine things, don't panic, we will get through them quickly. Nine things, what is the gospel? Okay? First of all, the gospel is continual. You see it there in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers. Paul makes it clear from the outset that he is not presenting something new. It is false to say that there is Paul's gospel and Jesus' gospel and Peter's gospel. There is only the gospel. What Paul is articulating here is that that which he received, he continues. And that is is the practice of Christians from the very beginning. One of the the, uh, benefits of reading church history or doing mission work is that you can read, I don't know, monks of the 12th century or you can travel to the village of of Dargol, Niger, Africa, and what you will hear is the same gospel message being preached. Paul's point is that he is not presenting something new, but rather he is presenting to them what he had, he had been given from others. The gospel, therefore, is not subject to an update. I think this is uh, one of the great errors of theological liberalism that has absolutely decimated the church. You can go all the way back to the 19th century, the uh, uh, the f- uh, founding members of, of what we might call theological liberalism. The whole argument was... In, in modernism, Christianity is going to be left behind. We can't believe in miracles anymore. Let's get rid of miracles. Thomas Jefferson famously cut out the miracles of the Gospels, for example. I've got a copy of it, I think, still in my office. Um, well, that was, that's the experiment of theological liberalism. Well, postmodern came along, so, so we'd already taken out all the miracles. So now we have to take out any truth claims in the Bible. Well, if you take out the divine and, 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 and divine intervention, and you take out truth statements in the Bible, what do you have left? But parables, even when the Bible claims to be true, right, there are no true statements in postmodernism, what you're left with are fables, parables. And no wonder then theological liberalism just doesn't work. Do you want to go to the church where the preacher stands up and says, I don't believe a word I'm about to say? You don't. And no wonder they are, they, they, they are disappearing right before our eyes. So in that context, then, what Paul is stating is the gospel is transcendent. It's not bound by time or culture or race or language, but it meets man wherever they might be. Uh, This is different from other religions. If you were to convert to Islam, you are simultaneously converting to Arabic culture. Good luck being purely Western and Islamic. It's very difficult to do. Because with Islam comes Arabic culture. You have to read the Quran in Arabic, which means you got to learn to read Arabic. The, the, the way they dress, their, their political systems, their ideology is, is shaped by Arabic Islamic culture. Same thing is true with, with Judaism. Uh, Judaism has it, its own culture. I would say Mormonism fits this. Buddhism, Hinduism, they all have uh, a, a unique culture that is with them, often attached to uh, cultural traditions, languages, dress Everything like that. If you go to Salt Lake City right now, it is very religious during the day. It's very secular, pagan in the evening. So in the day, you should probably wear a, a suit coat with a white shirt and a black tie just to fit in. Why? It's Mormon culture, right? This is it, but this is not the case with Christianity. We would not wear Wolverine or UK t-shirts if we want to be effective missionaries in Morocco, those are meaningless terms. University of Kentucky, University of Louisville, the Wildcats, the Cardinals. You know what you would do? You would, you would uh, 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 meet some of their sensitivities. Right? You, would, you would violate those sensitivities. You would change the way you dress. You would learn their language. You would, you, you, you would, you would uh, uh, figure out their culture. Why? Because Christianity isn't bound by that. Right? It's, it, rather, we receive the fundamental message of the gospel. And we share it. It is therefore transcendent and never in need of an update. Secondly, it is proclamational. You see it there again, verse 1. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, I preached to you. There is a a quote attributed to Francis of Assisi, who lived a long, long, long time ago. Um, And the quote is, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. There's a couple of problems with that. First, Francis of Assisi never said it. In fact, his life demonstrates he believed the opposites. In fact, from one article I came across, uh, Francis of Assisi, quote, clearly spent a great deal of time using his words when he preached, sometimes preaching up to five villages a day, often outdoors. In the country, Francis often spoke from a bale of straw or a barn doorway. In town, he would climb on a box or up steps in a public building. He preached to any who gathered to hear the strange but fiery little preacher from Assisi. He was sometimes... So animated and passionate his delivery, his feet would move as if he were dancing. So it's not even a sissy believed what it is that he supposedly said, uh, uh, supposedly had said. The other problem is it's unbiblical. The Bible is very clear that, that we are to speak the truth of the gospel. Again, theological liberals love this quote because they've taken the gospel and they've, they, they've confused it with justice issues. And so, so Christianity is, or the gospel, is feeding the poor. It's uh, fighting environmental disasters. It's, it's ending all wars. It's uh, nuclear disarmament. It's, you know, whatever it might be, uh, addressing poverty, racism, whatever it might be. Um, and although uh, Christianity has something to say and contribute to those issues, it's not what the gospel is. Because the gospel is a story that must be believed— it is a story that must be told. You cannot simply live out a story. You have to tell the story. That's the whole point of a story, right? You, is stories have to be told. And Christianity is a story. Jesus didn't bring law. He brought grace. And that grace is summarized in the story. And because of the narrative nature of Christianity, it, it has to be shared. And that is why Christianity has always emphasized preaching and evangelism. When Christianity started and the Holy Spirit came down, what's the first thing that the Apostle Peter did? He did not form a committee. He did not, he did not form an uh, organization that fought crime or poverty. He stood up and preached. He explained what happened. Christ died, Christ risen, spirits come, repent. Right? He preached. So, so if we believe the gospel, it is a message we have received and it is a message that we share without update or uh, dilution. Thirdly, the gospel is personal. Notice that um, I remind you of the gospel, I preach to you which you receive. Martin Luther, of course, once said, everyone must do two things alone. We must die alone, we must do our own believing alone. No one can believe for us, though we, we do try that. Can I prove it to you as Baptists we try to do this? Let's have a business meeting about removing people from our membership list that we haven't seen in 20 years. I'm glad that's never happened here, right? Is that going to be a fight? You bet you sweet bippy. Why? Because we act as if the membership, uh, church membership is the Lamb's book of life. And for many people, that is the only connection they have to children, grandchildren, family, neighbor, friends, whatever, to their faith they've long abandoned. And so there's a lostness that is there. But the truth is you and I cannot do the believing for other people. We just can't do it. We, ha- we have to receive the message. We have to believe the message. Therefore, saving faith isn't a matter of lineage. I grew up in a Christian home, ethnicity, or deeds. The truth of Christ must be believed personally. Um, and this becomes a practical issue when it comes to something like baptism. For many parents, the minute their children are baptized, they feel as if their spiritual responsibility is over with. In many ways, it's only beginning. That the first pastor or the main pastor any child should have should be dad. That he is nurturing them and discipling them within the home. And the church can play a role in that. But the first pastor that any person can have ought to be their father. Fourthly, it is central. Go down to verse verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Notice that language of receiving again that this is of first importance. The most fundamental message of Christianity is the gospel, centered on both the objective and subjective reality of of, 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 of Christ's death and resurrection, which we talked about this morning. Churches and believers are like when lesser matters trump the basic message of the gospel. In our current cultural moment, that is easy, an easy thing for us to do. It's an easy thing for us to do. Does anyone remember... Um, I think the year was 2020, and I think what happened was called the coronavirus. You remember that? We spent a lot of time talking about masks and being open, being closed, social distancing. And one of the challenging parts, I remember meeting with staff and deacons and everyone else is, is there is no easy way to navigate this because we are so driven by politics and power that what you said about, I don't know, hand sanitizers was a reflection of your politics. And it just behooved me, behooved me, right? Um, and if you, if you did X, that means you're a woke liberal. If you did Y, that means you're a crazy uh, conservative, right? And, and you, you just couldn't do that. Um, and it was difficult to navigate those things. And by the way, most of that hasn't gone away. We don't use the language of COVID. It's just gone in other directions, um, and um there are countless issues like that that can distract us um i remember someone asked me about a certain politician and i confess i'm not really a big fan of a certain politician and they they go, "well i didn't know you were a lefty or you know, something like that" and and i thought you can hold two things at one time what what you assumed was if you're a christian therefore x politically it's not always the case just not the case um and what we do is we confuse the gospel with lesser things. I found this to be a helpful um, way to, 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 to explore these issues is uh, in a helpful book by Kevin DeYoung and uh, Greg Gilbert. Um, I think it's called, What is the Mission of the Church? I got it in my office. Um, they, they said that one of the, the problems with this is, is there is the narrow gospel and there is the broad gospel. And what they mean by that is what Paul lays out here is the narrow gospel. You must believe these things to be saved. Christ has died for your sins and was risen from the grave. You have to believe it. That's the narrow gospel, right? Do not change that. Do not add to it. Do not take anything away. The narrow gospel. Then there is the broad gospel. Here, what they mean is the, these are broader implications of the gospel. And so what we may use as language like um, a, a gospel issue. So I think racism is a gospel issue. Anyone who can see that a Middle Eastern man Died for you and somehow has a problem with, say, people of color, right? You have just fundamentally denied the gospel. Or, or you can take something like poverty or something like loving your neighbor and what that looks like, right? These are broad issues. Now, there can be differences within how we navigate these things. How do you solve poverty? I have no idea. Human history has been around for 10,000 years and we still haven't been able to figure that out. So we can have, there's room for disagreement. But what we do is we think the broad gospel is the narrow gospel. Or we think that if you discuss the broad gospel, you're denying the narrow gospel. That's not it at all. But Paul comes and says the very most important thing is right here in in, in verse 3, Christ died um, for our sins. So the next thing is uh, that the gospel is Christological. Without Christ, there's no Christianity. I don't know if you could tell that or not. There is an ad, to go back to the ad illustration, there's an ad. It's a pharmaceutical ad. And I can't tell you the medicine. If you take it, I'm not making fun of you. Um, it, it, it got my attention. I just don't remember the details, okay? It says, so let's, let's call this medicine XYZ. And it says, and you get to the part where it tells you all the side effects, what to do, what not to do. It says, if you are allergic to X, Y, and Z, don't take X, Y, and Z. That was, that was, that's a real line in it. I would have never have come up with that myself. What lawyer sued who to force them to put that in the small print, right? That's absolutely incredible. So yeah, if you don't have Christ, you don't have Christianity. But the fundamental understanding of who Jesus is lies at the center of it. Jesus is not your homeboy, your co-pilot. Jesus is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal one with the Father, who added to that of his nature humanity, and, and, and he is both our creator and redeemer, He is present in the old, he's present in the new, he is present even today. And there is a man sitting at the right-hand throne of the Father named Jesus of Nazareth uh, who has conquered death. He is our high priest, he is our mediator, he is Christ. And and, and at its center of Christianity is, of course, our Savior Christ. So that is who he is, but what did Jesus do? So the gospel isn't just Christological, it's penal. It's penal and it's substitutionary. Notice verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Note the language for. For implies substitution. Christ died, that's the penalty. For, that's the substitutionary part. He died, the punishment of sin, uh, taken upon him his shoulders, the wrath of God reserved for us due to our sins. And, and he died in our place and for our sins. Very evident here what Paul means. Now, every religion has a personality attached to it. Of course, Islam has Muhammad, Joseph Smith in Mormonism, Abraham, Moses, David in Judaism, Buddha in Buddhism, the Dalai Lama in Tibetan uh, Buddhism. The current Dalai Lama is supposedly the 14th. Well, what sets Jesus apart is not just who he is, but what he has done. And, and Jesus paid a price we did not owe because we owe a price that we cannot pay, you've heard me say. And so I think one of the best examples of this is the story of Barabbas. Jesus suffers the, the legal crime of insurrection that was reserved for Barabbas. Barabbas was probably a revolutionary, maybe even a zealot. And so when Pilate brings up the guilty and the innocent. The innocent suffers, therefore the guilty man Barabbas goes free. Not based on anything that he did or deserves. It's grace. It's a picture of grace. So too, we are presented Christ in ourselves. We're going to lose that. But Christ dies in our place and for our sins. He became sin for us. Seventhly, the gospel is triumphal. Notice it there in, in verse 4. He was buried He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. He was buried. He was raised. The resurrection, therefore, is not optional. It is the central truth of the story. Christianity believes that if Jesus died and was buried, and that's where the story ends, Christianity would not exist. It wouldn't exist because it was never based off of law. If it was based off of law, it doesn't matter if the law giver dies because the law is the authority. Not the lawgiver. We believe the lawgiver is the authority, or here the Redeemer is the authority. And unless he conquers death, then there is no redemption. There is no freedom. There's no liberty. There is no life. Eighthly, is eighthly a word? Biblical. The gospel is biblical. Notice in verse 3 and in verse 4, Paul states twice, which, because I think it's a confession of faith, According to the Scriptures, Jesus died according to the Scriptures. Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. That means that our faith and our understanding of the Gospel is not man-made. It is divinely given. So that isn't that the disciples all came together and they said, Okay, something weird happened with that carpenter's kid, right? we got to figure this out. Any ideas? It's rather the Spirit has preserved for us in Scripture what it is that we are to believe. And at its core, at its center of the Bible is Jesus. You heard me quote Luther that um, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. Every page, every line, every dot has Jesus. And it ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. And so here we we get the story of Christ's death Um, in the Bible. We get the truth of his resurrection in the Bible. It, therefore, is the foundation of the faith. To abandon it or to limit it is to... Uh, undermine our faith. Finally, ninthly, and finally, you may even get out early. It is eschatological. There's a fancy term, eschatological. Notice, go down to verse 12. Um, I know we didn't read that part, but we'll pick up on it more, but just, just to highlight. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, there's the preaching part, right? If Christ, which is Christological, proclaimed, it's, it's proclamational, um, is raised, so it's it's, it's the penal substitutionary part, right? All of that, he, he just, he's summarizing it for us. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? We'll have more to say about this next week, but you can see his argument is pretty straightforward. Christ here it proves himself to be the first fruit of resurrection. His point is, is that Christ's resurrection ushers in the end times. It is true in that context to say we are in the end times, Martin Luther was living in the end times. Francis of Assisi was living in the end times. Polycarp was living in the end times. Christ ushers in the the end times. At the same time, we are waiting for the end of days, yes. But if Christ is risen, so shall we be risen. So the resurrection, which we look back to, leads us to anticipate what it is that is yet to come. So, So our understanding of the end times, particularly what happens to us when we die, is centered in the truth of the gospel. So the gospel, again, isn't just transactional and transformational. It is directing us to our ultimate destination. So we are saved. We are transformed. We will be glorified. Or as the Bible likes to put it, we have been saved, past tense. We are being saved, present tense. We will be saved, future tense. The Bible uses all three. And knowing that Christ was bodily raised from the dead gives us the assurance that we will be raised from the dead. I don't know if you've ever met um, someone who is paralyzed. uh, uh, Johnny Erickson Todd is a really great example of this. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's paralyzed from a uh, swimming accident, Uh, has little, little to no mobility, really has no mobility outside of, I think, her hands or her arms. She can't move her hands, but her arms, something like that. So forgive me if I'm getting some of the details wrong. She's often asked about, you know, her struggle with depression and stuff. And she says one of the things that 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 helps me to move on is to know the day will come when there are no wheelchairs in the new heavens and new earth. There is no paralysis in new heavens and new earth. And I know that is true because Christ is risen from the dead, bodily risen from the dead. The thorns couldn't uh, hold him down. The nails couldn't keep him to the tree. And death has no power over him. Why should I choose depression, choose despair, just because I can't walk. God can use the paralyzed because we know that there is hope in the end. Well, in March 1991, President George H.W. Bush had had an approval rating of 90%. What are the chances that any president, left or right, R or D, will ever, how divided we are, get an approval rating of fifty-one, let alone 90, right? I mean, come on. It is absolutely incredible. And of course, that, much of that was tied to the success of the Persian Gulf War, which may be the peak of America if you study it historically. Um, that's neither here nor there. Well, a little over a year later, August of 1992, his approval rating had dropped, but it was still at 64%. And if you are going into a reelection cycle, means it's highly likely that you will win re-election. So when former governor Bill Clinton ran against George H.W. Bush, he he had to have a very clear discipline campaign. And as such, they were giving three slogans. Every interview, every discussion, every speech, every handshake, everything. they were gonna talk about three things. Here they are, here's their slogans. Change versus more of the same. Secondly, don't forget health care. And thirdly, perhaps most importantly, and the most infamous one, it's the economy, stupid. Which means that if uh, Governor Clinton, Governor at the time Clinton, got a question, he would always, and it didn't matter what the question was, what is your favorite color? I'll tell you what my favorite color is, is that uh, people can't find jobs in this economy, right? You're going to answer it like that. Pound those three issues. Don't change it, don't update it, don't forget it. Stick to those three issues. And by doing so, Bill Clinton, savvy politician himself, a palky politician himself, was able to win election over a popular um, um, over a popular president run for re-election. Well, Christians, we, we, we... we have something simple. We don't have three messages, we have one. The message is simply, Christ has died for your sins. Christ is raised in victory. Repent and believe the gospel. That's it. That's it. Don't need to add. Don't need to take away. Christ has died for your sins. Christ has risen in victory. Repent and believe the gospel. Right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.